look, I'm going to say this one last time. There were six crunchy bars in the fridge, and now there are four. I had one. You've had the other one, haven't you? Any Anything you want to say? Honestly, I don't know what's happened to you during this lockdown. You're, you're binging, you're hardly doing any exercise, and now you're a liar. Well, thanks so much. Hi, I'm Andy Kind. Welcome to Redeemer King's uh, Sunday Preaching Service. And we're going through Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. I really, um, I haven't forgiven you. A really prophetic uh, book for us uh, as a church and hopefully for people watching from farther afield, it will be helpful for you as well. I'm going through Nehemiah 5 uh, today. I'm joined by uh, the Duke of Wellington. I was joined by him last time. I've also brought Grimlock in. Grimlock is, um, he's not a Christian, he's agnostic, but he was interested in what I was saying uh, last time. He watched Carl's preach from the other week. So he wants to, um, he's thinking about doing Alpha as well. We've got an Alpha course starting next Thursday over Zoom, 23rd of April. So uh, email me uh, and um, Grimlock's happy, happy to be your sponsor. Uh, and then we've also got Alan, um, but uh, it's been a tough week, really, you know, confined space and all that. Now, Nehemiah 5 is, I'm going to go through it verse by verse, but just to give you a, an overview, Nehemiah 5 is about a call to serve God. It's all about justice for the poor. And we're going to talk about the concept of, of, of justice. But it's a call not just to remember who you are, but to act out of who you are. It's not a reminder. It also sets you a schedule for meeting your identity. And I think during this really difficult time of pandemic and lockdown, I mean, what have you done over the last four weeks? You've, you've broken the world record for fridge openings. Um, you've started referring to a month ago as back on old earth. It, it's really weird. Um, but there is still stuff that, that we can do. And I think there's a temptation to want to feel better. I think there's a temptation. I know I am prone to it when I'm listening to a, a, a preach, a really good preach, to get to the end of that and think, oh, wow, that makes me feel better. Well, I'm glad that God loves me or, you know, I'm glad that I picked the right worldview or whatever it might be. But that isn't the point of preaching. Pre preaching isn't simply to captivate or to, um, to soothe you, but it's also to call you to action. If we're going to listen to preaching, and again, I'm talking about myself, I'm not, this is not pointed, if we're going to listen to preaching and all it does is, is make us feel better about us or about our situation, then it's almost as though the word of God has returned void because that isn't the point of preaching. God's primary aim is not to make you feel better. God's primary aim is not to hit you with 66 books of inspirational quotes to, to help you uh, manage your anxiety. The call to discipleship is not a call to self-preserve, but to self-sacrifice. And Nehemiah 5 is all about 
it's really linked to Romans 12. I do think Paul was really influenced by Nehemiah 5 when he was writing Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul talks about not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to stop. For me, for lots of us, we were raised in sort of Christian homes, really loving Christian homes, and we love Jesus because our parents made him so real. I had an experience with the Holy Spirit at five years of age, and uh, and that was the, the journey for me to finally giving my life to Jesus at the age of 22. But we've been raised in sort of a nominally Christian society, a lot of us, and we've absorbed stuff that actually isn't biblical Christianity, which we need to, to get rid of. So, for instance, society is obsessed with self-care. Society is obsessed with you wallowing in self-care. Now, self-care is important, but you know what? The, the, if we're Christians and we read the Bible, we realise that, that God never tells you to engage in self-care. What the Bible does talk about is caring for others and letting others care for you and letting him care for you. So God's all about care, but he's not primarily about self-care. So if you're putting self-care above self-sacrifice, if you're trying to self-preserve rather than pouring yourself out like a drink offering, as Paul talks about in one of his letters, for the sake of the gospel, it's idolatry. I've gone in quite hard here. I didn't necessarily um, mean to, but again, I'm, I'm still stung from the way Alan stole my chocolate bar. The Chesterfield chocolate thief, I call you. We've got to be careful not to stray into idolatry. If we elevate self-care over our desire to live for God and live for others, that is idolatry. And Nehemiah 5 is really about reminding us what it means to be called to serve God. Um, and I just it's just, you know, it's one of those things. You, I'm noticing a lot of people reacting really well to inspirational quotes. But these things can act as placebos. Even Bible verses shared online can act as placebos if they don't drive us to action. And although we may be fairly immobile, the church is not on furlough. God isn't social distancing from you and the church isn't on furlough. The buildings are empty, but so is the tomb. God is not resting. Your spiritual enemy is not resting. There's still as a call on our lives to act. I was walking on my um, daily mandated walk to the co-op and I walked past a guy and he had uh, a T-shirt uh, and it said, uh, live every day like it's your last. And... Initially, I thought, oh, well, that's a nice inspirational quote. And then I thought, hang on, what? that's terrible. <laughs> I don't want to do that. What do you mean, live every day like it's your last? You, what, you know, what, do I, what does that mean for me to live every day like it's my last? To cry down the phone to my loved ones, like, drop to my knees in Aldi and say, dear God, why me, please, just 10 more years. I know, we've got to be careful that we, that we actually find meaning and not just a placebo to make us feel a little bit better. I mean, I know what it, it, I know what that phrase means, live every day like it's your last. It means make the most of each day, but, but then say, make the most of each day. I don't want to live every day like it's my last. If I've got, 
If I've got drinks in the evening with friends, I don't want to turn up thinking, well, I've seen my last sunrise. That's not going to be good for my friends either. Like, why is Andy crying? Oh, he's, um, he's living every day like he's standing on a cosmic abyss uh, on the edge of it. Uh, oh, right. What is it? Is it his round then? I'm not saying it's not good to have a motto. It is good to have a motto. My motto is, isn't it good to have a motto? I mean, it's got me through some pretty tough times, I can tell you. What I'm saying is that we've got to be careful not to just not to just go for those comforting phrases that make us feel better. Our life as Christians is not about self-soothing. And inspirational quotes are great, but they've got to point to hope. They've got to point us towards purpose and hope. If you're going to have anything on a t-shirt, I think you should have something like, um, live every day like it's nice, but you can probably expect to live for another 30 to 40 years. And, uh, you know, that would be a good t-shirt. And you're probably thinking, well, Andy, that... <laughs> Problem is that that wouldn't that wouldn't fit on a t-shirt, um, but uh, that's not that's not correct. Um, I had this made up by um, Giraffe Graphics in Chesterfield, and they're available in uh, no shops. But um, please do send me money anyway. So Nehemiah five, let's get into it. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to stop at different points. I hope you're okay. I'm not sure I am. I am. Nehemiah helps the poor. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Does, does this sound familiar? So there's people here saying, we need to stockpile. So a famine has come in. This, you know, faceless force of nature has swept in. And people are doing what, what people do. Their, their instinct is to self-preserve. We need to stockpile. We need to get things so that we can survive. And someone might say, well, that's just, that's just natural. That's, you know, that, that survival instinct is just natural. And that's right, it is natural. But as a church, as Christians, we're not called to partner simply with the natural. We're called to partner with the supernatural. So our, our instinct, our emotions are not the things that drive us. Carry on, verse four and five. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. What's going on here is what we're realising in our society is that like, we are not immune to suffering. The good, news, the good news about the Christian story is that God doesn't have favourites. Everyone is his favourite. The good news about the gospel is that there's no social hierarchy within the kingdom of God. Other religions have a, a caste system. Actually, some people are born to be better than others. There's no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free in the kingdom of God. There's no social hierarchy. There's no caste system. Everyone is God's favourite. The bad news is that means that nobody is immune to suffering. It reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous and we are realizing this aren't we that actually we are incredibly mortal <laughs> 
and we have choices to make about what that means for us. You know, we are, we are powerless. These people saying we are powerless. And it's true, you are, you are powerless. You're, you're not in control. You may be physically strong, but actually you, you're, you don't have any power. A few weeks ago, someone in China ate a bat and now you've been in your pajamas for a month. Like you are not part of the Marvel Universe. But there's a power that you can call on. It's not about you having power. There is a power that you can call on. You know, 1 Timothy says, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and self-control. So fear is part of your survival instinct. And God's wired that into you as well. But he's given you something else. Not just the biological, but the spiritual. When you feel fear, God hasn't blessed you with that as a, as a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift, you know, the biological emotion and reaction is fear. The spiritual gift is love, power, and a sound mind. And these are the things you have to choose to partner with. We have choice in the midst of suffering, in the midst of fear. We have to acknowledge our fear. We have to acknowledge our pain. But we can still choose to bring in, to let the Holy Spirit bring in that love, that power, and a sound mind. Chapter 6, sorry, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is Nehemiah speaking. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So he pondered them. And again, it's interesting. The same verse, it's 2 Timothy, not 1 Timothy. The same verse in 2 Timothy that talks about spirit of power also talks about a spirit of self-control. So Nehemiah doesn't act out of his rage. Like he feels really angry and then he ponders it. He wants to make sure that when he acts to accuse these people, it's not his emotions that are talking. It's not his rage. It's okay to be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. He, he allows himself to calm down, to think about it, to pray about it. And then he acts. He acts out of the spirit of self-control, not the biological survival instinct to attack. I accuse nobles and officials. You see, once he knew he wasn't acting out of emotionalism, then he goes and speaks truth to power. And as a, as a prophetic people, a, a people who want to speak hope and truth into the future, we do sometimes need to speak truth to power. Nehemiah never, he never punches down. He, he does punch up. He punches up to call up. We'll come to that in a bit. So, I told them, the nobles and officials, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now, you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they had nothing to say. You see, he's shaming them here. He is shaming them, but he's not shaming them to leave them in their shame. Shame and guilt are perfectly functional responses to real world situations. It's not that you should never feel shame and guilt. Again, our society of self-care says you should, you should never feel shame or guilt. No, you should feel guilt for the stuff that you've done wrong. But you should never have to carry your guilt. That's what the cross is for. The Lord has provided 
a great big pin board right at the center of the universe for you to carry your guilt and your shame to and leave it there, leave it with him. How can you respond to Jesus if you don't think there's anything to respond to? How can you repent if you don't think there's anything to repent of? You have done stuff wrong, but God's love is is boundless and unfailing. He's given us a way out. He's given us He's given us a resource in any situation to deal with our guilt and our shame and to find that loving relationship which really brings peace and hope and freedom. So Nehemiah, he condemns the action but not the person. He's not afraid to tear down behaviour, but he never tears down someone's identity. And actually, although this seems really harsh... He's shouting at them and, you know, they keep silent because they can't find anything to say. He's actually calling them up to their identity. He's reminding them of who they were supposed to be. He's reminding them of that better story. Chapter 9, verse 9. Stop saying chapter. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Are you listening to this, Alan? What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So he's helping to shift their mindset. He's not saying, oh, you guys should be more like me. But remember who you are. Remember who God has called you to be. See, the way way we live our life should model God. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should want to model Jesus' behaviour and not just go along with what everybody else is doing. And we need to model God's love, his concern for the poor. You know, every book in the Bible talks about God's heart for the poor. Every single book, pretty much. But also, what we need to model is God's desire for everyone to come into a loving and saving relationship with him. I I see, um, I see some, again, not, I'm not thinking of individual persons here, but generally I I see Christians obsessed with environmentalism, recycling and uh, and stuff like that. And these are good things. It's about being a good steward. But what people sometimes do is to hide behind that, to use that as a smokescreen. Because you see, social justice um, is the acceptable face of of Christianity. Because everybody agrees that social justice is good. So you can be a Christian and recycle and you can all you can feel like i'm doing i'm doing just i'm being just i'm being just here i'm i'm looking after god's planet i'm doing what god has called me to do in in the bible but also everybody will like you when when you start sharing the gospel with people people won't like you but you know what the people who respond will love you this is what we need to understand when you're sharing the gospel most people won't like you because when you talk about environmentalism when you talk about recycling no one feels personally accountable to that. That doesn't overshadow people with this idea that they're accountable to a, a heavenly creator or some kind, of, some kind of judge of humanity. When you share the gospel, you, you bring that into people's mind. But that's the deal, you know. If, if, you, if you are more concerned with zero waste than zero people you know being separated from God, then again, you're in idolatry. 
you've, you've got it wrong. We need to stop looking for a theology where we don't have to do anything. We need to stop being like the world. Again, Romans 12, do not conform to the patterns of this world. Stop being like everybody else. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Self-care is great, but don't divorce it from self-sacrifice. How do you expect other people's lives to be transformed if yours isn't? And how do you expect to be transformed if you just conform to what society says is okay? Christianity gets, you know, Christians get plenty of things wrong. And we all disagree with other Christians on certain things. But I had somebody say to me, um, I'm not sure what I think about sharing the gospel. I said, well, the church in the book of Acts knew what they thought about it. Jesus knows what he thinks about it. So who are you looking to agree with? Who are you looking to be affirmed by? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? In the awe of. Fear just means awe. But, you know, he is the most powerful being in the universe. Like, that would scare me. I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of that history. So, we're carrying on. We're nearly there now. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. And then it goes really well. We will give it back, they said. We will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. I mean, that's, that's, that's a pretty good outcome from that situation. But God hasn't called us to profit from misfortune. This is, an, this is another thing. As a church... 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26 says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. As, as a church, we are, we are one. Romans 12, again, you're all part of the same body. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 says, there was no needy person among them. We're all building the same wall. We're all building God's kingdom. And we don't all have the same gifts. We don't all talk to stuffed Christmas foxes as though they're actually real life people and we shouldn't actually that's I can see that that was a mistake but we're all part of the same body and as a church we need to be looking after one another if one part suffers every every part suffers and it's those communities that we need to be bringing people into we're not saying hey you need to change your behavior and stay over there come and be part of this community where you will be looked after at Redeeming Church in Chesterfield, we're trying really hard to bring as many people into our community as possible. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves because we've got a big church or a church of, of many people, but because we want everybody to be free from that need. We, we believe that we're all God's children. We want people to know what it means to be a child of God. So we want to bring people in that, into that community. But there has to be that hive of activity, that hive of, of blessing one another, of being, of being hospitable. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So he calls them to account based on what they'd said. 
I also shook up the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. We are accountable to God. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver. Shekels! 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. People before him had lorded it over the populace. But we don't follow the patterns of this world. We don't do what everyone else is doing. Stop doing what everyone else is doing. And that can be something simple. Where there's despair, bring hope. Where there's hate, bring love. Where there's argument, bring a gentle word. Where there's discouragement, bring a prophetic word of encouragement. He carries on. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. So look at that. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like everybody else. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. This is an interesting um, point about purpose and uh, project. So his purpose is not building the wall. His purpose is to act out of his identity. His purpose is to be transformed by who God is. His project is building the wall. So I've got Christians saying, um, oh, I need, I need God to give me a purpose. No, he's given you a purpose. His purpose is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. His purpose is to live every day, live every day like you are fully known and fully loved by the creator of the universe. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Know it. Act out of it. That's your purpose. Your project is building the wall. You know, whatever your gifts are at the moment, you might need to employ them differently. But again, the church is not on furlough. Jesus is not social distancing from you. You might just need to think about where on this wall you need to go and, and, and rebuild. But, you know, if, if again, if in Romans 12, Paul talks about the gift. You know, if your gift is encouraging people, well, don't stop just because you're inside. Ring somebody up and encourage them. You know, if your gift is helping and serving, think of ways that you can help and serve. They might be different to what they looked like before, but you can still you can still do it. If your gift is leading, well, you still have to lead. Do it diligently. And we're so blessed at Redeemer King Church that we've got a leader who diligently leads and, and finds different ways to lead and encourage people. If your gift is generosity, if you have a history of being generous, don't stop now. In this pandemic where you've got less do, do it more you know in proverbs 28 it says those who give to the poor will lack nothing and just at the end of this at the end of this chapter it says furthermore 150 jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations 
Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In the middle of this famine, where he's refusing to take the governor's stuff, he's refusing to, to pull down from above, he finds abundance. He's not taking what is not owed to him. He's not taking what he could just get, what he feels he has a right to. And he's surrounded by famine. And yet God provides abundance. And this is, this is the narrow path for the Christian in this time. Whether you feel like you have less resources, whether practically you're, you're, you're not where you were, God can still provide you with abundance. And it, it comes by shifting our mindset to who we are in the light of who he is. And then finding that abundance. Not complaining too much. It's okay to be sad. It's okay not to be okay as a feeling. But that can't be where you end. It's okay not to be okay, but in his presence is fullness of joy. It's okay not to be okay, but... It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's okay not to be okay is the first part of the sentence. It's, not, it, it's followed by a comma, not, not a full stop. Sometimes I feel I need to pull myself together, actually, because I believe what the world wants me to believe, which is that a life is a story about me, but the, the Bible disagrees with me. The Bible says that I'm not the star of the show, but I can win the award for Best Supporting Actor. Abundance in the midst of need. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. He has met the call on his life and he's gone after it. He's aware that God sees, but that God is with him. This is, this is the message for us that in the midst of all this suffering, genuine suffering, genuine pain, the creator of the universe has provided you with a storyline that you can be part of. He's asked you to partner with him in a narrative that will change the world and transform people's lives. And it's service for him. And serving him doesn't just mean doing nice things to make you, you feel better. Service to him doesn't just mean um, social justice. It actually means sharing the Christian story, sharing the gospel, being bold, stepping out of your comfort zone because he sent you the comforter and it's not Netflix. It's the Holy Spirit. So there we go, Nehemiah 5. It's a call to service, not just, not just to belief, but to service. Let's not conform to the despair, to the, to the false feelings of, of betterment that we get from these inspirational phrases. Let's stay in the word and let's think about how we can use our gifts to serve the Lord in this, in this time. Live every day 
like you are fully known and fully loved and the creator of the universe sees you and is with you and is for you and that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That definitely won't fit on a t-shirt. I need to go and uh, I need to go and buy some more chocolate now. Have a good day.